Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we are back with the first episode of 2018. And it's going to be a good one. My guest today is one of the most colorful baseball players of the 1970s. And if you follow Super 70 Sports on Twitter, you know that I believe that great facial hair and a great afro are basically as important as any other skill that a player brings to the diamond. Well, my guest today scores a solid 80 on my white guy afro scouting scale. The facial hair game, impeccable. And oh yeah, he was a heck of a left-handed pitcher as well. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the only 20-game winner in the history of the Montreal Expos franchise, and the man they called Scuzz, Ross Grimsley. Ross, how are you? I'm doing great. How you doing, Ricky? So you got to tell me, the nickname Scuzz, where did that come from? Good question. I guess, uh, I believe when I was in, in Baltimore... I think, uh, I forget, it might have been Kenny Singleton, somebody hung out on me, and uh, I mean, if you if you look back and you, you see the uh, the hair, that's kind of a, a dead giveaway, so that <laughs> kind of went with the, it went with the look, uh, so that was, uh, I think that's where it got started right there. Well, you have one of the great looks of the 70s, man. I mean, that, that's one of the things that I love about the 70s. Anybody who knows me is that that era was just so colorful and awesome. And, I mean, you're right up there on the Mount Rushmore of great 70s looks. I, I, tell you, I look back and I'm going, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was it was a thing back then. And, and you got to uh, – I don't think a lot of people uh, – you know, know a lot of my background. You know, I was raised by Air Force parents. My dad played, uh, you know, 16 years in the minor leagues, played about a month and a half with the White Sox. But uh, they were Air Force people. They, they met in uh, uh, England during World War II. They were both in the Air Force. My mom was a whack. Anyway, long story short, I always had to have, uh, you know, the, the sidewall haircut, sidewalls around the ears, you know, high and tight. So that, that was a thing. And then I... Then I went to Cincinnati, and we had to have it that way. Also, you had a hair code; you had to have uh, have your hair cut. So then I, I went to got traded to Baltimore, and that's when I just kind of went uh, went crazy with it. You know, let, just let it <laughs> let it grow, and uh, and it did, and it just continued to grow. But uh, again, you know, that was back when we played. That was kind of the look and the the, uh, uh, the big hair, I guess you might say. But uh, yeah, it was a little, a little bit. Of, I, I got a chance to get away and just do what I wanted, and I did, and uh, uh, that's the way it looked. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it definitely a good thing, in my opinion. You mentioned your dad, 16 right. years in the minor leagues, and as you said, got a cup of coffee with the uh, with the White Sox. Uh, you're a second generation major leaguer, and and obviously your dad had a had a longer minor league career than than you had major league career. What what was it like growing up? Uh, around baseball like that? Was it something that you always knew uh, was your ambition when you got older? I, I wanted to be a minor league player. That was that was my uh, that was my goal as a kid because the major leagues was, I mean, that was uh, reserved for the best of the best. So uh, not, you know, and my dad being there, I thought that was just such a, 
uh, an accomplishment, you know, for him playing as long as he did. And, and also he played over in, uh, you know, in England and Germany during World War II. So he got a lot of years playing. But the, the, being in the major leagues was something that, I mean, you just read about that. And you watched it on TV. And, you know, the major leagues was just the elite. And I never dreamed that I would ever get a chance, much less uh, think that I was good enough to ever play in the major leagues. So that, that was... Yeah, being around, we, we traveled a lot. I mean, we lived in uh, Venezuela, and we lived in Cuba, lived in Mexico, and we got to travel around an awful lot. Me and my mom, uh, you know, she drove us around, and then uh, I had a, I have a brother and a sister. They weren't old enough. Well, they weren't even in, in the picture back then. They weren't even born yet. And uh, But, yeah, me and my mom drove all over the country and lived all over the, you know, you know all the places I'd mentioned. So, yeah, it was it was quite exciting. So you ended up in in Tennessee. How did how did the uh, family's journey end up there in Tennessee for you when you were when you were coming up as a prep pitcher? Right. My uh, uh, my dad played for the Memphis Chicks. Was a it was a farm team for the White Sox, and for whatever reason they just stayed there. That's where I was raised. I went to high school there. I went to uh, a year of junior college because I didn't uh, when I was drafted. I was drafted by Detroit. And I didn't sign because I thought I, you know, my dad thought I should get more money. So I went to junior college. And back then you had to go to junior college. You went to a four-year school. You would uh, have to wait four years before you'd sign. But I had several uh, scholarships in basketball, uh, probably more in basketball than I did in baseball. But, uh, I, but anyway, we stayed there, and I eventually signed with the Reds. I went to Jackson State Community College up in Jackson, Tennessee. But we had stayed there for, you know, uh, up until I was uh, 18, until I went to uh, my first year of professional ball was 1969 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I would come back, but then, uh, you know, I I met my wife in Indianapolis, and, you know, in 1972, 71 or 2, and we've been together ever since then with three kids. So, yeah, we uh, we ended up in Memphis, stayed there, and, uh, you know, my mom and dad have since passed. And they're buried in Memphis, but uh, I go back periodically and, uh, and see a lot of my old buddies that still live there. I'm looking at your minor league stats right now, and your your ambitions for a long minor league career. You kind of derailed that by pitching so damn good. Uh, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't too long for you. I mean, you you were 19 that that first year, and by the time you're 21 years old, you're you're up, and the Reds put you in the rotation. And that, that that's amazing. I mean, I, 19, uh, 1969, I was in uh, uh, the, the old defunct Northern League playing in Sioux Falls. And uh, I was there with Don Gullett and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a couple other people. But Don Gullett was the other, other pitcher that I remember, other player that made it to the major leagues off that team. But we had uh, the next year I went to AAA. It was in Indianapolis. And one of the pitchers got hurt in the big leagues. And... They took. I was. I led the league in earned run average, and Milt Wilcox, a right-handed pitcher, was uh, second. And they ended up taking him to the major leagues, and he eventually got to pitch in the World Series. And I'm going, well, why in the world could it have been me? I pitched uh, <laughs> as well as he did. Well, he was on the 40-man roster. I wasn't. You know, right. so that's how that worked. I look back, you know, and it was it was pretty neat. But I was in the big leagues the next year, and. I still have letters, now that you mentioned this, I have letters when I was in, when I first went to spring training, uh, my first spring training with the major league team, and I'll never forget the letters I wrote home. I'm going, 
you know, I don't know if I can do this. And then I'd have a good game. I'm going, you know, I actually think I can, I can pitch here. And uh, went on and on, and I, I said, I think I might make the team. And the, the letters were just priceless back then. I was talking about uh, uh, they had swimming pools at the hotels. And, I mean, you know, we were hillbillies down in Tennessee. They were all excited about a swimming pool, you know. And <laughs> tell my brothers and sisters, they come down here, we can get in the pool and stuff. So, anyway, it was pretty exciting. And uh, I realized that I actually had a chance. I, I I actually convinced myself that I can actually do this, and I never dreamed that that would ever happen. I just didn't know if I was good enough. I didn't, I didn't but then I found out that I can actually, uh, you know, get some people out. It was such a young rotation that you guys had in '71. I'm looking at it right here. Jim McLaughlin was the was the old man at age 27, and I think the rest of you, Gary Nolan, was the next oldest guy at 23. Wayne Simpson was 22, and Gullett was a year younger than you. Yes. You know, that's a, quite an assembly of talent that you guys had there in terms of uh, loading up the rotation with guys that had uh, pretty bright futures. Right. I mean, that was, uh, I guess they, you know, going to the World Series in 1970, they had, I think, Jim Merritt and uh, Tony Cloninger and some older guys, and they, they were getting they were getting old. And, you know, in spring training, you know, you you, you could see that the guys, that they would help you, but they knew that they're helping somebody that's going to take their job, but they still were, had the, you know, the mindset to help, help the, you know, the players get as good as they, they could possibly do and possibly help the team. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a young rotation and, uh, you know, we, Sparky didn't like pitchers very well for whatever reason. You know, he was, uh, you know, Captain Hook, but, uh, you know, you had the big red machine and, uh, it was just the, the beginning of that. And uh, it went on. I mean, I, I was traded the winner of 73 to Baltimore. But, uh, yeah, it was the beginning. And I, I would go back. Actually, we rented our, our home out to uh, Bill Plummer, who was the backup catcher to uh, Johnny Bench. So we were there for a lot of the world. We actually went to some of the playoffs and World Series games. We went to them because we were staying in the, in the house with, uh, with Plummer and his wife and children. So it was a good time. And we still stayed close, you know, even when I was traded and then went to Montreal, we stayed pretty close to the people there, you know, Rose and uh, uh, some of the other people there in Cincinnati. Let's talk about the 72 team because they pick up Joe Morgan from Houston and obviously that's a huge addition. And you guys, you know, go to the World Series and it's the only time that the Reds played the A's the two teams of the 70s, I suppose, uh, faced off in that series. And, of course, Oakland got you guys in seven. But uh, you won a couple of games in that World Series. I believe you're the winning pitcher in game five and six. So you were certainly doing your part. What was it like being on that stage and, you know, I mean, winning two games in the same World Series? There's not a lot of guys that can say that they did that. Just going to the World Series was, uh, you know, I mean, again – you know, I got married. We had a had a son. We went to the World Series all in 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 a year, and it was just. Uh, I mean, there was so much happened that it was just. Uh, uh, it it took about three or four years to actually realize what had happened and what we had done. I mean, going to here, you know, like, like I said before, you know, a year or two before that, I didn't even know if I could pitch in the big leagues, and then the next uh, next thing you know, I'm in the World Series in 1972. I mean, it was such a, a, a shock and uh, it, it just an amazing thing that, that happened. But I'll tell you the most exciting thing, the World Series is exciting, but the most exciting thing 
was the playoffs to get to the World Series. That, to me, uh, sticks out in my mind more than anything else. I mean, that was uh, it's just unbelievable excitement because if you don't win there, you don't go to the World Series. So that, that was, to me, was a really exciting time that I got to share with uh, my family, my mom and dad. My friends were able to come up there. And actually, I lost uh, game two. I started that and got beat two to one, uh, Catfish Hunter. That was actually, I think, the only game my father had ever seen me lose. Uh, he had, uh, I think I was wow. nine and one or 10 and one, the games that he had seen me pitch. And that was actually, I believe, the only time he ever saw me lose. So it'd be really good for me to uh, have him around. I can remember, uh, I can remember the air, the temperature, the smell. I mean, those things just have never went away. And every now and then you, you, you get a, a feel or a smell or something, and you go, that reminds me of the World Series in 1972. Well, I don't want to bury the performance that you had there in the NLCS because you threw a two-hitter in, right. ga- in Game 4 of the NLCS, beat Doc Ellis, and even that series up because you guys, it was an elimination game for you guys. Right. It, I tell you, it was... Uh, it was a big game, and uh, actually, and people asked me about that that game, and uh, Roberto Clemente got both hits, and he hit his last home run off of me. So that's something I wow. tell a lot of people that uh, you know, the heck with winning it, I got the, I got to give up uh, Roberto Clemente's last home run. So that that was uh, that's a special thing because he, uh, as most people know, he you know perished in that plane crash right after that. That's right, just a couple of months later. Yeah, yeah. So you guys lost, as I said, in, in seven. Um, you know, what's the reaction when you lose like that? Obviously, you were a young guy. You probably figured that you were going to get back to the, the World Series again. But, you know, getting there is obviously such an achievement. And winning a couple of games in the World Series is, a, you know, a, a nice feather in your cap. But then you guys come up a little short. What's the... What's the mood like going into the off season after having such a great year, but just missing out on you know grabbing the brass ring? Yeah, I mean it was uh, you know it. I was young, and like I said, so much had happened uh, in so short a time. There were so many uh, feelings and, and stuff that you emotions that you went through, and I, I wasn't you know obviously you lose you don't want to lose, but you know you, you accomplished so much. Uh, in such a short amount of time for me and so many things married uh, have a child uh, World Series playoffs and here like I said I, here I, I'm I don't even know if uh, two years before that if I could even pitch in the big league you know and uh, but so much happens but the, the next year you knew you had a good team you knew you had the, the beginning of the big red machine so it's just a matter of hey you know uh, uh, go into it again, and uh, the next year we got beat by the Mets uh, in it. But it was you, you knew that uh, uh, that it was going to be a good team, and then the shock of all, I get traded in the winter of '73 to Baltimore, and that was uh, a, a, again another big shock. So I had a lot a lot of things happened in a short period of time uh, in my life that uh, it took a few years to just really uh, understand and go. Boy, all of that happened. You know, it, it was it was amazing. Well, before we get to Baltimore, I, I want to ask you about the brawl in Game Three of the '73 NLCS, because because <laughs> yeah. I know that you you were the starting pitcher for the Reds that game, and you you, you got knocked out uh, early. 
Right. What? Take me through your recollection of how that situation went down with Pete Rose and Buddy Harrelson, and then all hell starting to break loose there at Shea Stadium. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a really. Uh, uh, a lot of tension in the air being there in New York, uh, you know, in, in the playoffs. And uh, it was just a really, you could tell there was a lot in the air, you know, going on. The fans were, I mean, were really uh, rowdy there, you know, carrying on and what have you. But, yeah, I had gotten, I had gotten knocked out in the, I mean, early, I think the first inning or maybe the second inning. But I stayed, I went upstairs to change uh, sweatshirts, came back down, and you could tell that, uh, I mean, the fans were getting really rowdy, and they were pushing their way down, you know, almost on the field and stuff. But uh, anyway, it uh, the the gold was, uh, you know, toward the end of the before that fight was to make sure, uh, well, after the fight, to get Rose was on on base in the ninth inning, and the thing was, how are you going to get him off the field so the fans don't attack him because the fans were getting ready to come on the field. Well, long story short. He had got off the field, and, and a lot of people didn't know it. And we were still on the field looking for him. and couldn't <laughs> find him. But, uh, I mean, the guard said, uh, you know, if I were you guys, I'd put, I'd put helmets on and grab a bat. So that the, the police officers are telling us that because it was such a, it was such wow. a madhouse, you know. But, yeah, it was – I think the, the fight was kind of uh, – it really wasn't much of a fight, to be honest with you. But uh, it was something that uh, there were just a lot of emotions and, and stuff going on, and uh, uh, it just got a little out of hand. But uh, you know, it was it was what it was. But it was uh, it was something else because the fans were really uh, uh, they were really riled up. The story that everybody talks about is Pedro Bourbon biting the Mets hat and ripping it. The hat. Um. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a big. Looked like a big, uh, looked like a cartoon where they took a big bite out of the bill of the hat. <laughs> I mean, he was, uh, oh yeah, he just took a big bite out of it. But yeah, like, like I said, a lot of emotions, a lot of excitement, and uh, it just uh, it went from there to what what happened. So yeah, it was uh, it was quite uh, quite hectic. I know we we were on the team bus, and somebody had thrown a piece of sod through a, a part of a, the window was cracked and it went right through the window. So yeah, it was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty hectic. Let's talk real quickly about Sparky because you mentioned that Sparky was kind of tough on pitchers, and I'm working on a book about baseball in the 1970s, and so I'm going to ask you right here on air if I can use some of the quotes from this no, podcast sure. for the book. But I've talked to a, a few guys that pitched for Sparky, and a couple of them mentioned that. He wasn't a very fun guy to pitch for, necessarily. Why do you think that was, and kind of what was Sparky's demeanor with, with pitchers, and particularly with young pitchers? Yeah, he did. I he just didn't care for uh, for whatever reason. And one of the things, well, he had trouble hitting pitchers, so he didn't like them. <laughs> so that was something that people said, you know. And I, is that true? I don't know. But yeah, he uh, uh, he didn't care a lot a lot for for whatever reason. I, I really don't know, but. I mean, there you know things that would happen. I mean, he just was really, uh, uh, really tough on us. And you know what? And it uh, it made us better. It made us better uh, competitors. You know, and we were, you know, it's just like, uh, well, if he's going to do that, I'm, whatever he wants me to do, or, or you know, running us, he would run run us to death. And then we'd have to do some uh, things called pickups and sit ups. 
and we'd be standing in the outfield uh, during batting practice in uh, spring training, and him or a coach would come up to us, and we'd have to do these pickups and sit-ups and stuff, and then we'd have to run, you know, at the end of the day. we run sometimes uh, foul pole to foul pole. We'd run, I know one day we ran about 48 foul pole to foul pole. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, and, and it got to the point where I'm going, you know what? I don't know what he's trying to do, but he ain't going to break me. Because I'll run out here until I drop, and then I'll get up and try to run some more. He just thinks I'll get the best of me, and that—that's kind of what—that's kind of what, uh, kinda what the, some of the things you, you felt. But for whatever reason, I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, but I, I said, just like I said, you're not going to get the best of me. I'm going to—I'm going to do this one way or the other. But uh, things would happen, and uh, uh, you know, why one thing that happened at, at one there was uh, I got—I received a rock in the mail. Now, we used to get stuff all the time. that we sent pictures and knickknacks and things. I got a rock wrapped in wire. And uh, I got this, and uh, I won three or four games. And then I lost it. Well, long story short, they go, uh, somebody, one reporter goes, it, it, you get, it, it's, a, it's a good luck charm from a witch. So next thing you know, it, they're talking about witchcraft and stuff, and I get called in the office. As far as goes, you're the laughing stock of the league. You got you can't do this. You can't put. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, the witchcraft stuff. I'm going, I'm not really sure, you know, about. I got a rock, and one of these reporters did this, and then they said, well, you need to send the get, get in touch with the witch and get another uh, good luck charm. I'm going, I don't know anything. I can't do that. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> But that's how this stuff, you know, I mean, stuff, a lot of things written about me have been embellished and uh, things have been left out, not totally, just to make it look, that was the beginning of that, you know, of stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it's, Sparky just, uh, he just didn't care for pictures. And for whatever reason, I didn't know and never found out, but uh, he was tough on us. As you've alluded to a couple of times, the next stop was Baltimore. You get traded uh there i believe the reds got merv rettenman uh in the deal what's your initial reaction as a young guy who has come up through the reds organization and succeeded very well uh the first uh, few years of your career there to find out that you're, you're getting shipped uh to a different league i was asleep when i got the call and chief bender uh, was the guy, he was the head of the, the farm system, and somebody that I had, you know, talked to a lot, you know, obviously before uh, I got to the big leagues and what have you. But anyway, I got a call. He said, You'd been, you've been traded to Baltimore. So I'm half asleep, and I'm going, what? And uh, long story short, again, uh, you're, we've traded you to Baltimore, and I, I well, what do I do? What do? Uh, well, they'll be in contact with you. Anyway, uh, that was a tremendous shock. You know, at Baltimore, I'm going, what? Baltimore? What? And I had no idea, other than the Orioles had played Cincinnati in the World Series and beat them, and they had Brooks Robinson, Jim Palmer, you know, and a lot of these people that, uh, you know, great players. But, yeah, it was it was quite a shock leaving Cincinnati where I had all – and I called my friends. I called uh, Rose. I called uh, uh, Gary Nolan. uh uh, you know, and all the people that were there that, that I'd been close to. And uh, it was kind of a shock to everybody. Jack Billingham, who I roomed with. But, yeah, it was a shock, uh, especially you'd never when you've never been traded before. I mean, you just there's so many things that go through your mind. What do I do? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? 
what's you know it, it was kind of uh, again a lot of different emotions that go through your mind all right Earl Weaver and and one of the th- yeah. and one of the things that's interesting about your careers I mean you played for a Hall of Fame manager uh, e- each of your first three cities uh, right. and, and we'll get to Dick Williams in a little bit but Earl Weaver is one of the great characters in the history of the game I mean any history of 1970s baseball there's got to be a few good Earl Weaver stories sprinkled in what were your initial impressions of Earl and what was it like playing for him there the years that you spent in Baltimore well I spent five years in Baltimore, you know, 74, 5, 6, or 7, and then I uh, went to Montreal, and I came back in 82, and that was my last last year in baseball. But uh, my first year in Baltimore, I go to spring training. We're down in Miami, and I haven't got – I still haven't got any hitters out in spring training. I think I had about a 14-earn run average. <laughs> Probably had uh, numerous physicals. Earl sat down, and he goes, I know you can get people out because you did last year. I'm going. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, I just I had a terrible spring. Couldn't do. Couldn't get any. I give up. I think I give up 13 runs in an inning and a third against the Yankees uh, one day, and 12 of those runs were earned. So yeah, it was it was just a, a, a disaster. Here I I get traded. I can't get anybody out. I mean they're just pounding me to death. But then I go on uh, 74. I had the best year I had in. In baseball, for for me, I won 18 games. I pitched almost, I think, 296 innings. You know, just had this, I just had a, a tremendous year. It was just uh, stuff wise. You know, I just did, did pitched a lot of innings, a lot of complete games. I think I pitched 14 innings one night against the Yankees, and uh, it was just it was just one of those years where everything was uh, was working and uh, pitching in the American League and uh, you know having uh, Mike Cuellar, Dave McNally, Jim Palmer. You know, George Bamberger was a pitching coach, and Earl having all those uh, guys, and uh, Andy Etchbarry and the catcher, and that the defense that they had. I mean, you just you throw the ball over the plate, uh, you got a chance of uh, and keep it down because of the defense. You had Belanger, Gretsch, Brooksy. I mean, if you could keep it down, you had a, you had a chance, and they were very intelligent uh, and knew where to play. If you hit your spots, uh, there'd usually be somebody there to make a play for you. So that was just a uh, it turned out to be a blessing. I know my first time I went to uh, Memorial Stadium, me and my wife. Now, we're coming from Cincinnati, Riverfront Stadium, where they had all the cookie-cutter uh, ballparks, you know, in St. Louis, Pittsburgh. All of them were basically the same. I go to Memorial Stadium and see that place, and I'm going, what have I got myself <laughs> into? It was uh, it was just an old, rickety place. But I tell you what, it was the of all places I pitched, that was the best, and I just had the, uh, a lot of fond memories and uh, of, of that of Memorial Stadium, and uh, just it was a great place to pitch. It just, uh, I mean, it, it was big. The ball didn't travel a lot. You had the White Houses in center field early in the year, so there was a lot of good things. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but yeah. Baltimore was. I mean, obviously, we've been here for you know for thirty-one years. I, I still live in Baltimore. Uh, the, my kids, my son and daughter live here as well. So yeah, it was uh, yeah, and Earl you had your run-ins with him, but you know what, of all the people I played for you knew your job, you knew what you had to do, and he made a comment if we lose, it's not it's not your fault, it's my fault for picking you. So anyway, it was just a really, uh, 
uh, you know, really great memories. And, uh, you know, he, he was a, a tremendous manager. I mean, you, you had your run-ins with him, but, uh, you know, it was forgotten the next day. Let me ask you about Reggie, because that's sort of, I think for a lot of people, that's kind of like the lost year of Reggie's career, or for lack of a better way of putting it, because when I was a kid, I was always fascinated with that year that he spent in Baltimore, because his right. his baseball card the next year, he, he went to New York early enough that they airbrushed him into a Yankees uniform, so you know, he never had a tops card where he was uh, wearing a Baltimore uniform. And obviously he had a tremendous amount of success in Oakland. They won three World Series there. He went on to New York in 77 and won a couple there and, and played in the World Series again in 81. And then, you know, those those uh, glory, uh, you know, days for him are sandwiched around 1976 in Baltimore. Um, right. What are your memories of Reggie when he got traded to Baltimore and what was he like as a teammate? He treated me outstanding, and I think maybe the reason he had a, I had a, a convert a conversion van, and I, actually several of us had them, and uh, he had his Porsche. So back then it was when the CB radios came out. On the way home after the games, we would be talking to each other on the CB radios. We got along very well. He treated me great. He liked me, and uh, I guess the CB radio thing that we had got us closer closer together but i what i remember i know uh, earl treated him just like he did everybody else we got on the plane back then we had to wear ties on the plane and uh when we go when we traveled and he got on the plane he didn't have a tie on so earl says the plane's not taking off till you get a tie so he gets off the plane goes and goes to the uh one of the stores in the airport gets a tie puts it on now he had a a sweater that went up around his neck and you couldn't even see his shirt so he gets back on the plane and Earl goes where's your tie so he pulls his sweater down he had a tie on so <laughs> but you couldn't even see it because the sweater covered it but he went and got a tie and Earl said okay plane can take off you know and uh, there's uh, another time that he was in the outfield he misjudged a ball or something in the sun and it dropped or whatever and Earl got him in the dugout and started uh, giving him the, the razz you know he says, says, you ought to just go out there and take fly ball sometimes. You take it, he pointed this guy, uh, Timmy Norbrook. See this guy right here? He doesn't even play, and he takes about 45 minutes of ground balls every day. He said, you ought to get out there and, and try catching some fly balls. Maybe that would help you. But he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to tell him, you know, what. But, <laughs> but Reggie, I mean, he was, uh, for me, he was outstanding. Now, somebody made a comment about the next year, do we need Reggie? on the team and now I was I forget what uh, who it was but uh, no I don't think I don't think we need Reggie and they asked somebody else and they go no I don't think we need him we got a good enough team without him and so that was uh, something that was mentioned so and obviously the Orioles went on and uh, you know they had the winning one of the winningest teams and the, them and the Reds the two winningest teams in the 70s so yeah it was something else well, you have no idea how happy it makes me that you were driving a conversion van and, and on your CB radio, because that's just how I would imagine you when I was, you know, 10 years old and looking at the baseball card, you know, I <laughs> that that fits the gimmick, you know, I, I love it. Uh, so legend has it, I, you, and you know, everything on the internet, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But right. le legend has it that you once threw an off-speed pitch during a game that was clocked at 42 miles an hour. Is that BS, or did, or did that happen? 
No, that's very possible. I mean, slow, slow, and hurry up and get there. <laughs> oh, no, I threw some very slow pitches. Oh, yes. Now, I don't know. I don't know how they how they timed it, but uh, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't surprise me one bit because there were some that were really slow. Now, that takes a lot of stones to do that. You know, actually, you know, actually, it does. And <laughs> people don't understand that to, to go out there and pitch. Uh, with the stuff I had at times, uh, yeah, you had to be really uh, have a lot of faith in what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go ahead and, and and move on to to you signing as a free agent with Montreal. Now, obviously, right there, you're you're 28 years old, a free agent, right? Still, just two three years after the dawn of the free agency era, so your timing was was pretty good. Uh, to come along to be able to cash in a little bit. And you make the decision to go back to the National League and and sign with Montreal. Now, going to a different country, I don't think that you can minimize that as being an important factor in anybody's decision. How easy was it for you to decide on Montreal? Who were the other teams that were in the mix? Yeah, back at that time, it was obviously supply and demand. And I was there wasn't very many left-handed pitchers on the market at that particular time, and uh, the Orioles they weren't going to uh, obviously give me the money that I could get as a free agent. So that that I would I would have liked to stay in in, uh, in Baltimore if I could have, but I mean obviously the contract six years uh, you know a million almost two million dollars was obviously. Uh, something that you couldn't turn down. Jerry Capstein was my agent, and uh, and he, uh, you know, he would. I don't know who I can't. I don't remember some of the other teams, but no one was going to give me six year contract, which is obviously uh, outrageous. But how could I turn it down? And the money, no other teams were going to give you the money. But the team Montreal was a, a group of young guys who, uh, you know, Ellis Valentine. Uh, Andre Dawson, Larry Parrish, Carter was there, uh, Warren Cromarty, uh, Tony Perez eventually was there, Dave Cash, Spire, you know, Steve Rogers, as I mentioned. But yeah, they had the, it, it looked like it was a young team. It was, the weather was cold, which I loved, and I knew the hitters didn't like that. So there were some other factors other than obviously the biggest, the length of the contract and the money, of course. That, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't going to be anywhere else, so that, that played a big, uh, a big role in it. But going to Montreal, and I, my dad had played in Montreal, so that was uh, uh, that wasn't a factor. But we knew, I knew the language. I didn't know the language, but I knew that the, the French language up there would uh, uh, would be something uh, different. But uh, my wife and son were, I mean, they were gung ho to do it. They are always looking for adventures. And doing things, going new places, and that's something that uh, that we always did, you know. And so, going to Montreal was another adventure, and we we did it. Now, I'm telling you how lucky you are that you peaked after the end of the reserve clause. But on the other hand, if you were if you were a free agent with the same pedigree uh, today, you're probably a hundred twenty million dollar pitcher or something like that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Hey, I made more money than I ever dreamed of making, you know, and I, I don't uh, uh, regret one minute of it. Uh, and, and you know, and obviously you, you hear, oh, now if you were doing, uh, if you were doing that now, you've been making a ton of money. Yeah, 
you know, maybe so. But like I said, I, I made more money than I ever dreamed. Uh, had more experiences and met more people, and uh, it was just a dream come true. And it was just, uh, you know, something that I, I never thought would ever happen, and just thrilled to death and blessed that it did. And pitching to a future Hall of Fame catcher there in Montreal, you're pitching to Bench. Yeah. You know, Bench was a young guy, too. And, of course, Gary Carr, you know, the kid really was a kid uh, there in 78 when when uh, he became your battery mate. Um, right. What was it like pitching to each of those guys? How, how were they different? I mean, those those two guys are uh, certainly the best National League catchers of the of the 1970s. How did how how did they differ and what were their strengths as, as receivers? So I always liked a guy that, you know, the target looked, looked big. You know, and uh, and they always did that. They they set up, uh, you know, wide. You had a big uh, a big spot to throw to. You know, and if you understand what I'm saying, yeah, I think but, I do. Uh, yeah, you get guys that make uh, make them look real small. Uh, they, they their their bodies are real small, but they they spread out and give you a good target, and that makes it a little bit easier for you to do it. But both of them could throw tremendous. You know, Bench had a you had he'd throw to second base and uh, you had to get out of the way or he'd knock you off the mound. His ball was uh, was chest high to you uh, throwing to second base. I mean, it was a gun. I just I had seen many people uh, throw that way even in today's uh, so over the times that I you know had played and coached. Uh, I haven't ever seen anybody throw like that. But uh, you know, one thing about Carter, Carter would catch it. He didn't even have to know what was coming. He would catch it. You know, he'd tell me sometimes, just throw what you want. You know, I don't even have to know. And I'd go, okay. Because <laughs> I didn't throw that hard anyway. But still, that was quite remarkable that he could do that. He would catch it. But, you know, they were both – Johnny was more – he wasn't as uh, – uh, Carter was a guy that wanted to be in the limelight. He, he uh, it really fueled him to be, uh, you know – be in the paper and be on the radio and the TV and stuff. And I don't think uh, Bench was really more. I, I didn't notice that as much with, with him, you know. But uh, they were both uh, unbelievable catchers, and uh, you know, just seemed uh, uh, they were easy to throw to. They, you know, they, they called pretty good games. They were easy to get on the same page with, and uh, you know, they obviously helped you out with uh, just with receiving and throwing. Very blessed to throw to two of the, the greatest catchers of all time. So what were you topping out at in, in those days? I mean, 1978 was, was your 20-win season. As I mentioned when I was introducing you, the only 20-game winner in the history of the franchise, and I'm not counting whatever the Washington Nationals have done because <laughs> that's well, a different... they have one guy. Okay. They have one, Gio Gonzalez. And let me, okay. Quickly, let me tell you, I got... I, uh, when I was... I, I coached for uh, 31 years, the last... Uh, 16 with the uh, Giants up until 2014 but there was a guy that would come this, the last six years I was in Richmond, Virginia with the A team and this the guy would come and he would go to the Nationals game so I said when you go down there can you get a couple balls signed by Gio Gonzalez and he goes sure why and I go well he's the only 20 game winner in the Nationals uh, history and I'm the only 20 game winner in the uh, Expos so uh, combining the two, and I'm I'm going. He goes well. Okay, so he went and he got got his autograph. He says he'll sign it if you'll sign one for him. I'm sure, I will. Nice. So 
so anyway, that was I, I still have the baseball downstairs, the only two twenty game winners in the history of the the two franchises. So I go up. I'm just in Montreal, actually, uh, but two or three weeks ago, did a signing for uh, uh, the Montreal Children's Hospital uh, for brain uh, uh, brain tumors, an uh, inoperable disease for children. The guy that put it on had lost his uh, uh, niece, who was five years old. So I go up there and do that. So I had told him, I said, I got this ball with Gio Gonzalez. He looked at me like, are you crazy? I'm going, no, what do you mean? He says, they want nothing to do with the Nationals. The Nationals want nothing to do with Montreal. So that I'm going, I just step right on my tongue by, by saying that. I go, I thought it was a good thing. We, we don't want nothing to do with those people. And so I'm going, oh, I'm sorry. But anyway, I got a ball signed by me and him. So that's, it's a cool item. I mean, I I think it's a neat little connection of history there. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah, just not in Mon, just not in Montreal. Oh no, no they don't like it. They don't like that. So, so you won twenty that year, and you know, as, as I say, what were you topping out at? I mean, you, you weren't a high velocity guy. I mean, if you no. if you were pumping one in there, you know, trying to slip one past the guy. I mean, what, what kind of reading were you getting on the gun in well, those days? Yeah. Well, let me let me tell you what I did when I went to Montreal. I, you know, you remember Jim Cott? Of course. Yeah, you remember how he had that quick delivery? I do. Yeah, well, I did that in Montreal when I won the 20 games. And I just thought it would be uh, add a little more deception and it worked really fast. Got the ball, and that's the reason uh, uh, Carter says, just throw it, I'll catch it. Sometimes he wouldn't even <laughs> give a sign. But I needed because, like I said, I didn't throw I didn't throw real hard. And I, uh, you put a miles per hour on it, maybe I would say, uh, you know, uh, at the best in the upper 80s. But the, right around that, but I, I I changed speeds all the time. I, I quick pitched. I just did a lot of stuff. You know, and, and the quicker you work, and that's one of the things, I don't understand why guys don't do that now because what happens is the, the hitters start worrying about how fast you're working, and it takes them out of what they have to do. So they start worrying about that. But, yeah, that, that was something that, that I did, and that uh, and I was able to change. And I, the, the, I could throw – the velocity-wise that I had, I could throw and just hit the spots. It was one of those years where when I threw on the side, I had the same stuff and the same command I did in the game, which was unbelievable. It was the best uh, you know, command that I had in my career. Stuff-wise wasn't as good, but the command and changing speeds, I could do that all the time and throw the ball over the plate most of the time. So that was a really, really, really big. Working quick and changing speeds is exactly what I did and throw the ball over the plate, and it worked. So I always love to ask guys who've made the all-star team, you're particularly making the all-star team for the first time, what's that experience like, walking into the locker room and looking around and being surrounded by the, the very best in your profession? I was like a fish out of water. And I, me and Steve Rogers made, uh, made the all-star team from the Expos, and... We went, we went to the airport, I think, and we had been playing the Phillies. Well, they didn't even, uh, they didn't even have our, our plane reservations. The Expos didn't, for whatever reason. So anyway, we went with a lot of the Phillies guys, and, uh, it, it was, uh, it was, it was just, uh, like I said, a fish out of water. We get out there, I'm in the, in the locker room with all these guys that, you know, the greatest players of that era, and, uh, it, it was just, 
unbelievable. I mean, it's again, it was you know you're, you're just speechless. You're I'm in the same room with uh, you know Dave Winfield, uh, Rose, Mike Smith. Uh, you know, just go on and name guys that uh, you know team. It, just, it was just uh, it was kind of embarrassing to be honest with you. And I'm going. This is just unreal, you know. It was just a very special thing. But they treated us, you know. Steve Garvey was there. My agent Jerry Capstein, he represented a lot of the people as well, so he was there. But it, it was, uh, it was just uh, a fantastic time. They're like, uh, "What am I doing here?" I just felt really like a kid. I want to go up and ask for autographs. That makes me think. When you're first coming up as a young guy, just to backtrack for a second. Uh, what was your reaction facing Hank Aaron or, or facing Willie Mays or Clemente? Uh, I, you know, because I've talked to a lot of players uh, over the course of the last couple of years for the podcast and for this book that's in the works, and I get different answers. Some guys say, oh my gosh, it was like my, my baseball cards had come to life, and I had to take a moment to kind of gather myself, and then other guys were just kind of like, "Ah, eh, no big deal, whatever, just a just a batter." What, where did you fall on that spectrum? That's a good analogy that you just mentioned about my baseball cards come to life, and that's what I was a, a collector. I had a lot of you know I collected uh, baseball cards and stuff, and uh, I, I just the letters that I had saved that my well actually the letters my mom saved when I would write to them during spring training about, you know, facing uh, Al Kaline or, or Harmon Killebrew or some of these guys. Uh, it, it was, you know, it, it's you were collecting baseball cards of these guys, and now all of a sudden you're playing against them. And like I said, I, I just thought of, uh, you know, the major leagues as somewhere where, you know, I'll never, that's for elite players. That's for the, the people, that, the, the best. And I never dreamed I would get there, and much less, play against I'll, I'll tell you a story in 1973 I, I was in uh, I was playing against the Mets we were in New York and Willie Mays was there and I had pitched against Willie Mays uh, when he was with the Giants the, in uh, 71 and uh, he uh, he's playing and I sent the bat boy over for an autograph I said can you tell can you tell uh, Mr. Mays it's for me I'm, I'm pitching tonight so he signed it and uh, he comes back and I couldn't read the ball I said, can you possibly ask him if he can write it so I can read it? You know, <laughs> and he did. Well, anyway, he he, he signs it, and I, yeah, I get it, and I struck him out three times. <laughs> so I'm going, oh gosh! Wow, that is. I know it was. But you know, it's such a. It's it's. I mean, I really. I think I finally realized that I could. I could play in the major leagues when I faced some of these guys and I beat uh, in 1971 I went to uh, I pitched the last game of spring training and they broke camp we went to Louisville when I was with the Reds they broke camp I had already been cut and they needed somebody to pitch the, the last game of spring training so we were playing the Detroit Tigers in Louisville I flew to Louisville met the team there pitched eight innings give up one hit and uh, against D Detroit, they had their opening day lineup out there. The Reds had theirs. Flew back to uh, Miami and, uh, you know, finished spring training, the minor league spring training. Then I went to Indianapolis. I, after a while, I'm going, you know what? I, I can do this. I actually, and pissing against some of the uh, 
the you know big hitters. I mean, they got me at times, but I got them as well. But facing uh, Mays, Killebrew, I mean, some of these guys that just uh, you know the Hall of Fame, Willie McCovey. Each team had you know had their stars and stuff. But yeah, it was uh, it was just a, a, a dream, a, a dream that came true. You know, and it's just like I imagine it's like hitting the lotto. I mean, being a free agent and going to Montreal, it, I, it was my lotto. I did hit it, you know. So, you know, you, you still just kind of pinch yourself and go, did this really happen? Okay, now I, I've got to ask you this one from, I believe this was uh, the between your stint uh, well in, with Cleveland in 80 and then Baltimore in 82. I want to say this was 81 while you were uh, okay. in Cleveland. Tell me the Terry Pluto armadillo story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I told this. We were, uh, you know, I do the, the pregame for the Orioles at 105.7, the fan here in Baltimore. And before the season sometimes or or, uh, or during the season, we'll have some time. You know, a rain out, we'll talk. Uh, a rain delay. So, anyway, I had, uh, I had went to Cleveland uh, from Montreal in uh, – Started off the first few games, but then uh, uh, I had run into some problems. Obviously, Terry Pluto started writing, uh, you know, saying, "I can't believe this guy's doing this, doing that, whatever." So, anyway, I, I, I get released. Uh, I think in, in eighty, if I'm not mistaken, eighty or eighty-one, I forget when it was. And uh, Cleveland comes in here, Baltimore. So I get my daughter. I go to the uh, uh, to the clubhouse. I go into Cleveland. Uh, in the locker room, I'm seeing the guys, I'm talking, how you guys doing, blah, 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 blah. And I got my daughter by the hand. Terry Pluto comes up and says, hey, Grams, what are you doing? So I wasn't real happy with him. I didn't want to talk to him. So uh, I'm going, everything's fine, Terry. I'm doing good. So I kept talking. I think it was uh, Manning, Hargrove, and uh, somebody else. I forget who it was. There's three guys. I'm talking to them. And uh, he says, Grams, how you doing? What, what are you doing? And uh, being a, a wise a wise ass, I go, I'm raising armadillo. And I kept talking. I said it with a straight face. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, and, and the guys, they're chuckling and stuff. And he goes, you're doing what? I go, I'm, I'm raising armadillos. And I kept talking. And I said it with a straight face. And I'm going, and he goes, well, wh- how many do you have? I go, I got about 300. Where, where are they at? I said, they're in Cockeysville, which is north of Baltimore. I got about 200 acres up there. We got about 300 uh Armadillas. Well, what do you What do you do with them? And I go. Well, we we make belts and hats and things out of them. And, and he just kept. So he started writing this down. He got his pad and pen out, and I'm going. This guy's believing this. So and I and I'm still. Straight, I'm not laughing, and uh, the guys aren't laughing. And he just keeps asking me questions about this. And I yeah. What do you feed them? I go. Well, Perina made some chow that we feed them, and. Perina armadillo chow or something. <laughs> anyway, I kept feeding him this stuff, and it, and he was buying it. And I'm going, are you kidding me? So we kept going. So anyway, I get done, say bye, I leave. So about two weeks later, my dad calls me. He goes, what the hell are you doing up there? And I'm going, what are you talking about, Dad? He goes, it was in the sporting news. He had he had published this. It's in the sporting news about the Grimsley's raising armadillos. And I'm going, are you kidding me? I, I said, I go, armadillos can't live up there in Maryland. And I go, Dad, I know that. He go, and then I told him the story. This guy bought this. and uh, Well, anyway, we're doing, we're doing a show 
uh, here in Baltimore, and uh, he was on the show. He, he, he called in, and uh, the guy I'm with, Jerry Coleman, says, yeah, Terry Pluto's going to call in. And I told him, oh, ask him about this. And so he went on. He said that was the greatest prank he's ever had played on him. He said he was a young, he was a young writer just starting, and he, he just went on and on. He goes, he got me good. I'm going, oh, that was that was priceless. <laughs> the, the the real key here is how you were able to keep your composure and not let on. You know, oh, it, no, it, it come up with the stuff. Yeah, the Perina made some chow for him or whatever, and uh, yeah, we used belts and what have you. I, I'm just, I'm going, where did this come from? And and I said it with a straight face, wasn't laughing or anything. And I'm, inside, I'm dying. I'm going this guy's buying this stuff, you know? So anyway, it was a big laugh. We all got a big laugh out of it, but, uh, you know, I got to talk to him again. It was pretty funny. 11 years in the big leagues, a, li- a lifetime in baseball. I mean, how many years have you, have you been in uh, professional ball over the course of your career? A good 45 years oh, or so, right? Oh, heavens more than that. I, if you could even take uh, probably been in it or around it, perhaps 60, 67, probably, uh, you know, all but six or seven years I've been in, in or around it, you know, with my dad playing and stuff. So my entire life basically has been, uh, been in this, and, you know, it's been, uh, it's been quite a, quite a ride. Baseball's still the best game. That's my, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, well, listen, it's a great pleasure talking to you and I'd love to do it again sometime. Great, buddy. Thanks for calling. All right. Take care, my friend. My thanks to Ross Grimsley, such a great guy, and what a fun conversation that was. I think the next time that I want to flip somebody's wig, I'm just going to tell them that I'm an armadillo farmer. And with my accent, probably everybody is going to buy that, actually. My guest next time is one of the most influential baseball writers of his generation. Rob Nyer is going to join me for what promises to be a terrific conversation about baseball. We're going to cover a wide variety of topics, from the great books that he's written, to what it was like working for Bill James, to the book that I know that he's working on now, which promises to be a must-read, as I find all of Rob's work to be. So tune in next time when my guest is Rob Nyer. Until then, this is Ricky Cobb saying to never... This an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.